Welcome back to the self-care unit for this week's episode. To help us all learn more about OCD, we are joined by Dr. Francine Baffa. Francine Baffa is one of Operation Happy Nurses, licensed clinical social workers who co-writes the TheraSpace blog. Francine focuses on evidence-based treatments across the lifespan in the areas of anxiety and worry. She is engaged in training across various settings, including community clinics and hospitals, as well as intensive outpatient and partial hospitalization programs at leading organizations specializing in the treatment of anxiety and OCD. Through her training, Dr. Baffa furthered her commitment to individualized treatment tailored to each patient. Her clinical experience strengthened her knowledge of cognitive behavioral therapy exposure and response prevention and fueled her passion for the effective treatment of anxiety, OCD, and related disorders. So thank you, Dr. Baffa, for joining us today. Thank you, Carly and Shannon. It's a pleasure to be here to be able to discuss a topic that's that's close to my heart, um, one that you know I, I know that many people experience and um, and those who may even experience it, but you know, have the shame and are associated with not, you know, externalizing how they feel as they're struggling with it. So I think it's a really key topic and one that as we educate individuals about how to recognize it, we can also put in um, building blocks in terms of prevention and self-support skills. So again, honor to be here and to share and have this open conversation. I'm excited to learn. Our first question is really basic because there's so much competing information and misinformation as well out there. What exactly is OCD? Um, and that's a great question because I know we hear a lot of people like, oh, I'm oh so OCD today or I'm so obsessed. And then it makes a misnomer that it's actually a lighter diagnosis than it is, right? So in its true form, OCD is binding two things. We have thoughts and actions. We have our obsessive thoughts, which are intrusive, that we cannot put a stop to, and we link those with specific actions or compulsions. In order to be truly diagnosed as OCD, this linkage has to be such that it interferes with your daily ability to execute on social, personal relationships in a work environment, and even to clear your head to even move on to another topic, right? Because we all know the experience where, you know, we're obsessed with the latest song or a new perfume or something like that, and it's it's on our mind. But once we purchase it or if we hear it a few times, then it goes away. With this um, obsessive-compulsive linkage within an OCD diagnosis, it's very difficult to stop. And paradoxically, only engaging in the behavior provides momentary relief, yet that's reinforcing the cycle and it continues. Um, so that's an overall, and, and just a caveat, um, OCD in, in terms of this linkage with the thoughts and the behaviors is different than um, OCPD, right? When it's, when it's a personality disorder. Um, and I think the main differentiation, which we can unpack further here today, is with OCD, clients are aware and they can rationalize and say, what I'm doing does not make sense, yet without interventions are unable to sort of break free of that bondage that's holding them in place. I love that description because it's like everything that I've felt with my OCD symptoms and to know my OCD symptoms, and I'll go into this a little bit later in the podcast, but I developed it as an adult because of stressors in my life. 
And for me, it was, it was so difficult. Cause like you said, I knew that what I was doing wasn't rational. I was doing these patterns, completing actions because I, in my head had somehow rationalized that if I did it, it would like help my patients later on that if I didn't do it, something bad would happen to them. But then I could take a step back and be like, this doesn't make sense, but I still had to complete it because my anxiety got so bad. If I didn't complete it, I would get really, really stressed out by it. So like you said, though, it's very much a short-term quick relief when you complete it. But if I didn't complete it correctly, my anxiety got tenfold and I had to do it again and again and again and take a walk away and come back. And I, yeah, it it's rough and it's ongoing, right? Once you start with it, I went to therapy last year, two years ago, last year, because I was going through some other things that was making it difficult again, that was making my OCD come back rearing its ugly head. So I went to therapy to help with it. And she told me that, which I didn't know that prior, I tried to cut off my OCD cold turkey. And she's like, it's really hard to get rid of. And a lot of the times when you try to get rid of one habit, another one pops up. So I personally, and the ones that appear a lot is I check my oven and stove. I check in multiples of three. So originally when I was in a very dark period of time within nursing, the first two years of my career, the amount of multiples of three was higher, but as it ebbs and flows, occasionally it'll get lower, but it's always multiples of three. Um, another one that appears a lot is checking the locks on my door. And then my alarm clock is another one. But during the period of time right after university, I and right at the beginning of my nursing career, I had others as well. I would have to check underneath my bed. I would have to check in my closet. I would have to, like I said, the door on my front door, but also my lock in my room. And then one that appeared after I had gotten rid of a couple others was checking my blinds, which doesn't really make sense. And then checking the outlets, making sure nothing is plugged in places, that sort of thing. And a lot of the safety ones, because if you can see like a lot of mine, I feel like have to do with safety or stuff like that. Um, a lot of my safety ones actually seemed to get worse when I got a dog because I was so afraid of leaving him there that I didn't trust my own eyes that things were unplugged, straighteners were off, the oven was off, you know, I didn't trust it. And those had always been there pre getting a dog, but I think they did kind of reappear after I got one. So that was an interesting take. But yeah, I learned that I can get rid of one and I'll be so happy. But then all of a sudden, a few weeks later, if you don't address the underlying symptoms, all of a sudden, another one might appear in a different sector of your life. So going into this, can you give us a rundown of different types of symptoms that one might experience with OCD and or stuff that you have seen? I know from what I heard that most people count in odd numbers. I'm lucky that mine was three, but have you seen that it's normally a larger repetition? What is your personal experience within the signs and symptoms of OCD? Um, okay, great. And um, you gave us a lot there to unpack, Shannon. So I just kind of want to step back. Um, because I think as you noted, like fundamentally, 
it's getting down to what is that ultimate fear, right? Because we're going to develop replacement behaviors. So if it is checking and we stop that one behavior, we may latch on to another. And so I think, you know, drilling down and finding out what, what need is this satisfying? What question is it answering? Because from a foundational level, it's that, it's that sitting with the uncertainty and that, and that not knowing, sort of being in that space. Um, and then I think also, as you mentioned, you know, OCD itself, although looking different, um, it can be categorized still by those obsessive compulsions, right? So we have checking behavior, we have repetitive behavior, and we have ordering things. Now, you asked a question um, sort of in that labyrinth there. I just want to touch base on, you know, is it familial? Is any of it, you know, genetic or inherited? And I think the research is still out on that um, in terms of um, familial inheritance. Some studies indicate that parts of it could be. Um, I know current studies are underway looking at whether there's a sibling relationship because the behavior is can be context specific, right? And I think... Um, you know, when when stress becomes exasperated in other parts of our lives, we seek that ritualistic and that routine and that predictability that we feel that we're gaining, right? And as and like we mentioned earlier, the gap between the obsessive thought and the compulsion becomes shorter so that we become more in need of having to re-perform and re-perform and re-perform. Um, and in terms of, is there a set number? Um, oddly enough, in my own experience, um, I had a client who, you know, tapped the dashboard three times and then tapped the gas pedal three times. So three seems to be a number, whether it's any, you know, connection to, you know, other terms, because a lot of the universe, like 333 or 666, multiples of three have significant meaning. Or if it, you know, once is never enough. And right, two seems like, you know, just once. But once we get into higher numbers, then we really feel like we're insuring or or that 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 kind of blind thought that I'm really insuring safety. I'm doing this more than is needed. And and then not being able to walk away from it, right? I think it's a characteristic of, of that OCD type of behavior. You're, you're continually drawn back into further executions. Um, and, and I think some of the ones that you shared were mainly around, you know, checking, ensuring safety. Um, and I think especially in, in the medical field, right, we feel this this sort of, um, you know, we've taken on this mandate or this charge to, you know, ensure the health and provide the best care for those patients or individuals that we're working with, right? And I think it's a way that we can then, you know, kind of build that space where we feel that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to execute on this, right? Because we know in our own minds, rationally, right, we can execute and we can perform and we can do our due diligence and, and follow all trends of best care, but then there's always other factors, right? But if engaging in these behaviors, we squelch some of that, that inner anxiety, right? Because anxiety is that space, that space of uncertainty where it's just difficult, right, to kind of be in that wave. We don't know what's going to happen next. So as someone who is 
outside of that. And I don't have OCD and I, I have a lot of friends that do actually. But what does this come from a sense of needing to control subconsciously your environment? And, you know, obviously like nursing wise, and I don't want to speak for you, Shannon, but I'm just like questioning out here. I know nursing, it's like you, everything is very chaotic and you're, you know, it's, it's, you try, you're trying, like you said, to keep your patients safe and make sure your environment's safe at work for everybody. But then it's like in your own world, if you're dealing with all this chaos in and outside of work, and is that something, is, is this any of it come from trying to subconsciously control your environment is what I'm asking you, I guess. Um, I, I, I can weigh in and I would, I would welcome Shannon weighing in as well. Um, I think OCG can be predicated on that need to control, right? Because the world itself seems so ambiguous and not, and not tangible, right? And we want something that's quantifiable, right? And a lot of these obsessive compulsions are almost quantifiable. They're done, right? It's, it's a thought, it's an action, it's complete until it's not. And then we repeat it, right? Um, Yet I think that that predictability is then sort of like the overlaying of what we're seeking of that unidentified fear. And more so, I feel it's it's like, how do we tolerate um, distress, right? And I think that's the key thing. How do we, how do we stay in that messy middle, right? So Francine, you, oh my gosh, when you were talking about like, my OCD tendencies and safety, and then our patients. I, <laughs> I think I had an existential crisis. I was like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. This realization just came to me because mine started with nursing. Mine started because I was dealing with the death and dying process with infants. And it's hard no matter what age it is. It doesn't matter if they're infants or if they're adults. You connect with these patients and what nurses tend to do and at least on the NICU, or at least with the coworkers I've worked with, Carly can speak on this too. But if something happens to our patient, if they go downhill, even if there's nothing that we could have done, I, in order to rationalize it, would find ways that I could have done something differently in order to better their outcome. Even if rationally I look at it, I'm looking, taking a step back, and I know that I did everything in my power to save this patient. I did everything in my power and provided the best possible care so that this patient didn't go downhill or didn't start developing worsening symptoms, I still would need something to rationalize it because a lot of the times there's a lot of irrational things that we have to deal with. So I think that with that, like you said, I was trying to provide this sense of safety to my patients and in doing so, I started developing OCD. It began at the hospital I started checking things a lot of times at the hospital. I started like, for example, if my TPN came, so just like fluids that have a lot of extra things in it. um, If our TPN came, I would check the electrolytes on it multiple times to make sure nothing was off there. I would, the way that I was uh, priming the tubing, I had to be completely and utterly sterile with no bubbles, nothing, which you're supposed to do. But if I thought at all, somehow I breathed wrong, I had to like completely redo it. And I know Carly recently on an episode talked about the feeling of like obsessing over the loss of a patient and that sort of thing. So when you said safety of our patients and my brain exploded because 
it made so much sense. And I didn't even realize all of mine had to do with really safety until I started talking to you guys. And now my brain's like, oh my gosh, Shannon, it all makes sense. This is, this, this works. But yeah, mine started in the hospital, transformed into my personal life. And thank you. Here we are dealing with it day in and day out. It does ebb and flow though. I will say that. Right. And I think one thing too with OCD is it can be, it can be contextual and, and place specific, but then it can transfer into other behaviors and other habits. Right. And it can bleed into not only the safety of my patients, the safety of my dog. Now I've taken on a dog and the dog is within my realm of space, my responsibility. What can I do to ensure this? Right. And from what I'm hearing from you, Shannon, is that a lot of it is around loss and possible death. Right. And those are two, two really deep areas that sort of um, there's been a lot of work done. It's it's not only grief, but it's it's like amorphous, ambiguous grief. You're grieving the loss, and you're grieving the loss of what could have been or what's yet to be defined. So it's it's never a graspable concept, right? So behavior centered around that type of safety need to continue as almost as if to encapsulate that fear because you kind of want to, you know, be able to to put it in a nice bubble and then hide it under the bed. But it can't because it's so non nondescript, right? Yeah. And I think one thing to keep in mind is that the the intrusive and thoughts that we have are not controllable, right? And and they they come at such a high speed that we're we're less able to access our rational brain. Like our rational brain tweets at us that this is not work. You know, we know better than this, right? But the thoughts are coming in such a way that we don't have access, right? There's no emotional regulation. We're just in this high adrenaline, you know, safety seeking mode, right? Which then for the terminology does compulse us to act. It's almost automatic, right? So when we're looking at interventions, one of the ones within the CBT umbrella would be that exposure and response prevention, right? It's finding, it's finding the creak in the pattern to create a pause and a space to make another choice, right? And even more so than to actually execute on that choice, to give yourself the wherewithal to even consider that there's another possibility. And I think, you know, that's, um, I may be jumping ahead, but I think that's a key part in terms of intervention treatment. Um, and, you know, I kind of, you know, my terminology is like ponder the pause. We want to respond rather than react is what I guide patients. And in order to respond, one needs to sort of step back yeah, because it's a response is not automatic. Yeah. A response has that thoughtful nature to it. Listen, Francine, I was in therapy for this for months and I, no one has explained it the way that you have. I am so grateful that you're on this podcast right now. I could get emotional about this. You are unbelievable. But since my job started this or really, you know, I guess not started it, my job exacerbated my anxiety and caused these OCD tendencies. Have you seen that in your profession that people's jobs or other people's large factors really trigger this? Or is it normally something that has been sitting around since you were a child and then just gets exacerbated? 
Um, I think there's definitely components to individual jobs, individual academia settings, individual interpersonal settings that kind of elicit that response, whether it be fear, uncertainty, lack of security, that we want to then be able to ritualize and put patterns around, right? So I think, you know, jobs, jobs could be even administrative jobs where you want the, the perfect email or am I communicating? Or if I said this a different way, then the customer service would have come through, right? And in the hospital, you know, if I laid this out differently, the surgeon would have picked up X, Y, and Z, or the patient would have followed this protocol, right? So I think environmental cues will trigger the behavior and set up patterns, whether those be in work, whether those be in school, whether those even be in, um, you know, there's a lot of OCD and ritualistic behaviors in, in athletic events as well, right? So I think it's, it's every situation in life can set itself up to be a contextual environment for these things to, you know, like a Petri dish, right? I, th- I think life, life off, unfortunately, life offers us every opportunity to question our own thoughts. And then I don't know why that is. We, we, we believe the negative, right? Each thought is just as fictitious as the next, but we don't believe the good ones. So, you know, it's pick a better thought to latch onto, but you know, we don't always do that. So you brought it up a little bit with cognitive behavioral therapy and some research says it might not be recommended because sometimes it might make someone have more symptoms. Uh, what is the best treatment in your opinion and does cognitive behavioral therapy actually help? Um, so I think this is where I may sway from a little bit of the research um, in terms of bringing up some of that anxiety is not necessarily bad because you're going to have that increased anxiety as you separate yourself from the action, which is the compulsion to to decrease it. Um, I think that layering CBT um, with um, acceptance commitment therapy is key. Across my practice, I think it's really important that we as individuals embrace all of ourselves so we don't see ourselves in quote unquote need of self-help. Like we're not broken individuals, we're learning individuals. We're learning who we are and we're learning ourselves, right? And if I see myself as someone who needs to be fixed, how can I ever get this right? Because I'm coming in like with a handicap, right? So like I encourage patients and clients to, to accept that they're going to have these intrusive thoughts. They don't necessarily mean anything. They don't necessarily mean they need to take an action, but accepting that they're going to come and go because oftentimes we'll have the thoughts we, and, and if we're trying to totally suppress them using um, exposure response prevention, then we're getting anxious because oh, I had the thought. I didn't want to have the thought. Now I have the other thought, right? And then we're like dogs chasing our tails and we're anxious about being anxious and we can never calm ourselves down because there's there's no escape, right? Like our mind is like a Ferris wheel and it just keeps going. So I think kind of coming from the premise that these thoughts are going to come, don't mean that I need to act on them. They're not going to do this, but accept them. And then I like to also layer in some DBT because I really think, how do I tolerate distress? How can I be in that paradoxical space of, good, bad, right, wrong, like, you know, knowing, not knowing, uncertainty, um, because really that's where the beauty lies, right? That's in the, that's the now, right? That paradoxical space. We only know what happened because it was past, 
and we only get anxious because that's in the future, right? So I really think it's important to bring clients into the moment, right? What do they know to be true now? And um, I integrate, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, I encourage, you know, clients to um, practice outside of those times of OCD, like an anxiety-proofing diet, as I call it. Like have a daily substantive routine of engaging in ways to lower your heart rate and be one, whether that's through journaling, whether that's through breathing, yoga, coloring, whatever, whatever that activity is for you. Because then what you do is you lower your reactive set point. You're not going to get as anxious and you can, you become more resilient. And I think, um, you know, kind of to, to synapse this and close this up, I, I truly feel that as, in any way that you can build competency within a, within a client and a patient so that they feel that their most recent memory of dealing with an OCD behavior or an anxiety is one of accomplishment, they feel confident enough to tackle the next one. And, and that's kind of the premise. Um, so I think CBT and that exposure is good, but we also have to learn necessarily feeling anxiety is bad is it, Feeling anxiety is not bad. It's what do we do with that feeling? Um, and then if, you know, I think, you know, as a second line or as a adjunctive line, if people want to try forms of SSRI, I think it all depends on how much, how much of my life am I missing and I am not engaging in because I'm engaging in these thoughts. I, I hope that kind of roundabout way, Charlie. Very helpful. And I found for me, you had mentioned breathing exercises. For me, practicing those breathing exercises when I am having those compulsions, like knowing, because like you said, we know that it's not rational. So when I can take a step back and do deep breathing or center myself, I found that it's a lot easier for me to break that need to act it doesn't work all the time. So I'm not saying it's like a magic thing. It doesn't work all the time, but I have found that it definitely helps me to recenter myself and give myself a moment to hopefully pull back a little. Right. And to sort of um, tailgate on that, like, I think anything that impacts our senses is going to give a jolt and create sort of like that charge in our brain so that we don't follow that same pattern. Right. So a lot of times I'll recommend to clients like, you know, either, you know, touching something that has a has a different sensory input or smelling something or, you know, taking notice of what's in their environment, um, you know, and, and that is, is exactly what happens with breathing. You're concentrating more on the breath than on the anxious thoughts. And you sort of like jar yourself back into the here and now. So I have. I don't even know if it's generalized anxiety uh, because of nursing and post pandemic and COVID. I, I actually got anxiety of like pre-work, just terrified to go to work. I didn't know what the day would hold. We were floating all over the place in the hospital and I love routine, I'm a type A gal and it just was not working out for me. And how does general anxiety differentiate from OCD and how do you diagnose the difference? Because I'm not saying I have OCD because I was hearing Shannon's story and I'm thinking 
okay, I check to make sure the straightener's off, but I check once and I'm good. Like I go about my life and I can, I need to make sure the door is locked because I watch a lot of crime podcasts and I freak myself out. <laughs> so I lock the door and I move on. But like hearing her story, I'm like, oh my gosh, that has to be so crippling at times. Like just to, you know, have that constant thought in your head. So how do you differentiate between the two? I mean, I think we circle back to the beginning in terms of, is that, is that obsessive thought something that I can put aside? Like, can I hear the Taylor Swift song and not hear hear it again? Of course I can, <laughs> but you know, like, you know, or can I, can I check the doors and the windows? Um, but if I'm watching a television show, am I able to sit and finish the show before I do it? Right? Like, am I concerned and, and I can let it go and have that space in between or do I need to act immediately and is it robbing me of moments that I can be spending with my family, time that I can be engaging with other people, right? Is it really, um, because, you know, I think this is, this is not a, a, a well-known statistic, but OCD is really the seventh dis- most like disabling condition, right? It's a diagnosis. Like, so, you know, in terms of impact on work, life, and other events, it can be very paralyzing, Right. And I think generalized anxiety presents more in, you know, the anxious, the anxious thoughts of physiological reaction and less of the ritualized behavior. Now, someone who's anxious may find solace in a clean desk or an organized house or a vacuum carpet. And that the relief that they feel from that is more sustained than the relief that someone would feel like within an OCD loop. So I think it's working with the clinician um, and more importantly, being honest and sharing how, how much you feel these are impacting and or interfering with your life, right? Um, because we're only as good as the information that we receive. And, you know, we want to, we want to work with the client in terms of how best to address it. Yeah. So Going into that, because with my compulsions and my like that, it was more internally for me and all of my stuff had to do with in the home. I mean, there were things like cleaning at the hospital. People would be like, oh, you're really clean. whatnot. Like I had to clean everything. I had to check my charting. But again, it was all surrounding kind of like myself and I would plan extra time to be able to complete those things. Like I put it into my schedule there. So I feel like it was crippling to me, but I don't necessarily know if like it affected those around me because I would plan it. Like at the hospital, no one knew that I was OCD. They would just be like, oh, she's really clean (laughs) or, oh, she's very like particular about how she's starting these IVs, you know, like all of mine had to do with germs there. And so it just kind of fed into the hospital system, if that makes sense. So like when you say that it can cripple like your relationships and stuff, I think more my personality withdrawal did, but I hid my compulsions. Like the only person who really knew that I had like the OCD tendencies were those who were like in my apartment with me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, I think quite like quote unquote, like micro behaviors like that, you know, or keeping it separate um, is very common. 
And, and I think looking at it and looking at it in hindsight, like with some distancing, those behaviors were impacting you, but, or, and yet took time away from probably something else that you could be doing at that moment, whether it was to exert self-care for yourself or take a break or, you know, just sit down and, you know, have a mental holiday, right? Like, like there were, there was a time element. And I think while you were engaging in the behaviors and also the pre-thinking around the engagement and the behaviors, what was it going to look like? How was I going to find the time? What if, you know, I didn't get this and I needed to catch the bus or there was an emergency, right? So I think we're, we're not necessarily very, accurate reporters of our, of our own, of our own life sometimes. Right. So I think it's, it behooves us sometimes to tease it out and see what, what is the script really telling us? Yeah. And to note, I did like in California, we're very lucky. We get breaks a lot. And so, and in other units, that's not the case. And so COVID really exemplified my cleaning in the hospital because I just wanted to make sure everything was very sanitary. So I would skip my last break so that I could make sure I cleaned everything before the next person came on. So I could see how in that I'm like, Oh, you know, I didn't really do anything, but I would not take time for myself in order to make sure that it was all good for the next person to come on and to make sure that I wasn't bringing any germs in to the unit, that sort of thing. Um, But Carly, I wanted to make a comment because I was really appreciative of how you acknowledged that it can be debilitating because it's kind of really hard and embarrassing to be around people, you know? And I think that's one of the, you know, sort of an interior experience from OCD or from any sort of anxiety is, you know, the internal shame or dialogue that can go on about why am I like this or what's wrong or why am I experiencing this, you know? And I think that's demything that is really important. And I think going back to Carly's question, you know, I think demything that shame and, and addressing that initially is even more important than what type of CBT or exposure or anything that you're going to do in terms of supporting the individual, right? Knowing that this isn't something to be shameful of. This is something that's happening right now. doesn't mean that it's happening forever. And we're going to work on it together. And you're going to develop compensatory skills to move beyond it and not let it define you. For sure. And Carly, to note, I've had people who like in the middle of my OCD will be like, well, just stop. And I'm like, I can't. I'm trying, dude. Yeah. Let me just do yeah, that. Oh, it's done. Yeah. Oh, oh, now I'm done. Yeah. yeah. No, Carly, so I'm so appreciative of you. And yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine. But yeah. I feel for you. But thank you so much, Dr. Francine, for sharing all of this with us. We really appreciate you taking the time to explain more about it. And I know Shannon is very grateful. Uh, but thank you. Thank you. And for our listeners, stay tuned for next week. We're going to dive more into cognitive behavioral therapy. Do you have any questions that you want us to ask? Let us know. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.